Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which is given us given to us to make us wise unto salvation, which is in Jesus Christ. And so we ask this morning that you would show us our Lord Jesus, that we may glorify and honor you through him in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, what is wisdom? The wisdom, according to Charlie Brown and Snoopy, is found in a couple little cartoons. Snoopy and uh, what's the bird's name? Woodstock. Woodstock. Woodstock are sitting on Snoopy's roof, and and uh, it you know a little caption says, "Learn from yesterday." Snoopy says, "Live for today." He continues, "Look to tomorrow." He advises, "Rest this afternoon." And then Charlie Brown, dealing with Snoopy, he says, "Friends are the chocolate chips in the cookies of life." <laughs> well, those are cute. I like those. But Proverbs really provides us with a, a more serious approach to wisdom. In Proverbs 1, we read, To know wisdom and instruction, to understand the words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And later in Proverbs chapter 3, we read these words that many of us have memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths, or He will make them straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Well, we read about a young, a wise young man when we turn to Daniel chapter 1. And... Uh, it's in the year that Nebuchadnezzar goes against uh, Jerusalem, but it's not the first time. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar had attacked Jer Judah and Jerusalem on three occasions. Now you can read about these battles in 2 Kings 24 and 25 and 2 Chronicles 36. Uh, the first attack was largely against Judah while Jehoiakim was king. The second attack occurred while Jehoiachin was king. After this attack, Nebuchadnezzar made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's brother, Jehoiachin's brother, uncle, I mean, king in his stead, and changed his name to Zedekiah. In the third attack, Nebuchadnezzar sacked and destroyed Jerusalem. Well, Daniel and his friends seem to have been part of the second attack on Jerusalem. For we read in 2 Kings 24, 10 to 17, At that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. 
And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king took Babylon... Took, the king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land, and he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, the chief men of the land, he took into captivity in Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive Babylon, all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Well, the story continues in Daniel chapter 1 as we read about Nebuchadnezzar going up against Jerusalem in the reign of Jehoiakim. And that was the second time that he went to Jerusalem. And this time he brought back with him uh, some of the vessels of the house of God. And uh, he brought back with him uh, them uh, to the land of Shinar, the house of his God. And he placed the vessels of the, in the treasury of his God. And then the king, we read, commanded Ashpenaz his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, to bring them to the palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Well, Daniel and his friends, who became known as Belteshazzar and then uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, they formed this group of young men who were exceptional in terms of their wisdom. And uh, Daniel seems to be a light that, that shines, um, that shines. He was a young man who was wise, and it's even mentioned that he's wise later on in, in the book. But Daniel is picked because of his wisdom, and his wisdom includes understanding, and we're going to see that wisdom unfold as we go through the book. But Daniel, we read in verse 4, and I assume, or I mean in verse 8, and I assume that that includes his friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I assume it includes them, but Daniel is the only one that's mentioned, and he resolved... Um, that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, why was that an issue? Well, there's different opinions, and some people will tell you that um, Daniel uh, refused to be defiled by eating foods that had been offered uh, to idols. And so he uh, did not want to eat any of the meat or any of the wine because it might have been used in a and offering to the false gods. But the problem with that view is that there were also vegetables that were used in offerings to God. So 
uh, why would he choose vegetables um, knowing that they too were probably used in offerings just like they were in his own country. So what about the food? Well, I think I agree with those who say that Daniel was um, attempting to not be um, assimilated totally into the culture of the Chaldeans. He drew a line, as it were, and said, okay, I can do this. You know, I can learn their language. I can learn their literature. I can help them with the, the you know, understanding uh, things that they don't understand. Um, but I'm not going to be one of them. I'm going to keep myself distinct as a Jew. And one of the ways that I can do that is to not eat of the table of the food from the team king's table. And I think that that's probably what he has in mind because Daniel doesn't, he doesn't refuse to eat it. He just offers an alternative, which again shows his wisdom, right? He doesn't just say, okay, I'm not eating that. You can put me to death. You can hang me. I don't care what you do. I'm not going to eat the food. No, he just says, um, I don't want to eat this food because I don't want to defile myself. And the eunuch, uh, the eunuch says to him, listen, I fear the king. You know, if, if I don't take care of you, it's going to fall on my shoulders. You know, it's going to be my head that falls. And so, um, what can we do here? And Daniel says, well, listen, let's just do a test. You feed us just vegetables, lentils, or whatever else that they had. And uh, you do that for 10 days, and you compare us to the other, the other youth. And if we're not in superior condition, then we'll, we'll go ahead and eat the king's, at the king's table. We'll eat his food. And so the eunuch says, well, okay, and he does that. And at the end, he finds, we, we find uh, in verse 15, at the end of the days, it was seen that, that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the, the steward took away their food and the wine to, they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. You know, he said, he's, this is going to make him actually look better because these guys are really doing well. And so those four youths, we read in verse 17, God gave them learning and skill and all literature. And again, notice the word wisdom. And in all wisdom. Wisdom seems to underline um, a lot of things that are going on in the book of Daniel. And uh, you'll notice at the end of the chapter that there's a, a bookend. The chapter begins with the reign of or with Nebuchadnezzar being king in Babylon. It ends with the king of Cyrus. Daniel lived in Babylon all those years, and those are the bookends of the chapter. Daniel is always in, it seems, captivity. I don't know that Daniel ever got I don't know that Daniel was ever allowed to go back to his home in Israel. It doesn't appear that he was. But he was a faithful servant to God while he lived in Babylon. And we're going to see that over and again as we go through the book of Daniel. While Daniel's three friends are highlighted in the book, 
the book is actually about Daniel. I mean, we read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3, but you don't read much more about them. Um, you read about Daniel. And wisdom is a trait that is repeated over and again relative to Daniel. However, Daniel repeatedly gave God the glory for the wisdom that he had. For example, in chapter 2, we're going to read um, in verses 21 to 23, it is he that is God, his God, who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. And again, in chapter 2, verse 30, but as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man. So Daniel doesn't think that he's wise in, his, in himself. He understands that it comes from God. But as you go through the book, the wisdom of Daniel seems highlighted over and again. And one of the clearest examples or statements about Daniel's wisdom comes from chapter 5. The record of King Bel Belshazzar's feast during which a hand appeared on the wall and wrote something. Remember that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah having, uh, you know, the king, what he had done was he, he uh, sent to the treasury and he got the, the vessels from the house of the Lord. Yeah. And he's using them for a common purpose. Everybody's drinking out of them, they're eating yeah. out of them. Yeah. And so, you know, a hand appears on the wall and, um, and appears on the wall and it writes many, many tico, uh, uh, um what is it? Many, what is it? Farson. Yeah, that's it. I <laughs> can't get it out of my mouth. <clears throat> and it scared him. Well, I guess I'd be scared too. What would you be if just a hand, let's just say a hand, appeared here and started writing a message that you, you understood the language. The language is clear. The, the language is Aramaic, so it's not a problem. It's not that they don't understand the words. They don't understand the significance of the words. But what, how is the king described? Well, his, his face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack. I kind of know how that feels. <laughs> but this one gets me. And his knees began knocking together. <laughs> he was afraid. But then the queen comes along and listen to her description of Daniel. She says, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, emphasizes that, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel. Light and understanding and excellent wisdom were found in him. So throughout the book, this, this word that crops up three times in Daniel 1 is ascribed to Daniel, being a young man who is wise, wiser than Everybody in, in, in the kingdom. And we saw, you know, we see it in chapter 1. Mostly it's described that he's wise, but when we see him interacting with the eunuch, 
we understand his wisdom. It's like a wisdom of Solomon, right? It's like the wisdom of Solomon. Remember Solomon was, was on the wall and the, the two ladies came and said, this one took my son during the night and replaced him and going back and forth and back and forth. And Solomon says, hold on, wait a minute. Give me the live child. Bring me a sword. I'm going to cut the live one in half and here, you could each have half. That settles it. And the lady, that, the lady whose child it was said, no. No, no, let her, have, let her have the child. And Solomon knew. Mm-hmm. He said, give the child to that woman. Yeah. She's the mother. Because yeah. the other mother didn't care. She yeah. said, go ahead, kill them right. too. So, yeah. right. you know, there's, it takes a certain amount of uh, wisdom and also sometimes a certain amount of chutzpah to do those kinds of things. But Solomon demonstrated his wisdom. Well, Daniel was like that. Um, th- there are these two individuals in scripture who stand out in terms of wisdom. It's not that others aren't mentioned as being wise. It's that Solomon stands out as being a wise a wise king because oh he not only did he demonstrate his wisdom, not only did the king of the queen of the south come out to to, to admire his wisdom, um, but he wrote all these proverbs and he was a man skilled in wisdom and understanding. Well Daniel's the other one that comes up in, in scripture of being a man who was uh, uh, um, endowed with wisdom. Um, In Ezekiel we read, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it and cut off it from, uh, cut cut from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord. In other words, their righteousness wouldn't help these other people. Their wisdom wouldn't help these other people. So Scripture records these other individuals, Solomon being outstanding, Daniel being outstanding as well. But in redemptive history, there is another young man about Daniel's age found in the temple discussing theology with the teachers of the law. His name is Jesus. And Jesus, like Daniel, is a prophet. Unlike Daniel, Jesus is a priest. And like Solomon, Jesus is a king. And he's also a servant. Daniel's a servant in the house of this king. Jesus is a servant to his people in his day. And Jesus has a righteousness that does that does save others. Of Christ, God says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, that is Christ's soul, He will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Now, as I said, Christ was around the same age as Daniel, at least in chapter 1 of Daniel. Jesus was around the same age when his parents found him in the temple discussing, um, discussing theology with the teachers of the law. But what's really fascinating as you read about Jesus is that Luke says the child continued to grow 
become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. And verse 52, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now we read these words and we object, but how can this be? Is Jesus not the Son of God, of one substance with the Father, and therefore infinite, eternal, and changeable in His being? How can it be that He increased in wisdom? Immediately we are introduced to the mystery of the Incarnation. In the Incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, or the Son, takes to himself human nature. That is, the second person of the divine trinity takes human nature to himself. He does not cease being truly God the Son, neither is he like some superman that divinizes humanity. No, he is truly divine and truly human. He is the God-man. Daniel points us to Christ at least in this one sense that he was wise. Daniel grew in wisdom and so did Jesus. But for Jesus it presents to us some kind of an enigma. Why? How is it that God the Son could actually develop, grow in his wisdom and knowledge? How could that happen? Well, I want to draw your attention to a passage where that truth is presented before us. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I draw your attention to two details here. First, some versions read that he existed, that is like in past tense, he existed in the form of God, which implies that he was not by nature God while he was man. But that is not what the text teaches. In fact, it teaches the opposite. What it says is while existing as in the form of God, he took on human form. While existing in the form of God, he didn't stop being God. Amen. He took human nature to himself. Amen. The text clearly teaches the dual nature of Christ. He is both God and man in one person. Second, most of your versions read in 2 verse 7, but he emptied himself Taking, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Um, the, New King James, or the King James Version and the New King James Version are more accurate. The Son did not empty himself of his divine nature. Dr. Warfield <coughs> called that a mistranslation. 
The verb found in only four other, uh, four other New Testament passages, namely Romans 4.14, 1 Corinthians 1.17, 9.15, and 2 Corinthians 9.3. In all of these, it is the word used for emptied is used figuratively and what it means figuratively and what it means is to make void or of no effect or of no account or of no reputation if we so understand the word here Jesus he he did not uh, what he means is that he did not assert divine prerogative but took the form of a servant in other words Jesus is truly God but that divine nature did not assert its divine prerogative. He lived as really a man. The second person of the Trinity lived a human life. It's the person that unites the natures. He isn't God, one person God and another person man. He's not two persons with um, a human and one divine nature. He's one person with two natures. <clears throat> and we have to understand, that mystery though this may be, is something that we need to embrace. Embrace. Our confession of faith reflects this in what it teaches about Jesus. In Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, section 2, we read, The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person. Notice it's the person who unites them. Without conversion, that is, without composition or confusion. In other words, the natures did not, they, weren't, they didn't become, uh, you know, a, a super composition. You know, they didn't become one, they didn't unite to become one different kind of nature. No, they stayed what they were. <clears throat> which, ver- which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Christ, in the work of mediation, this is section 7, acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet, by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to the one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. Let me give you an example. Acts 20.28 God uh, gave, uh, shed His blood for the life of His people. That's attributing to the divine nature what the human nature did. And that's what the confession is saying. Because of the unity that exists there, that which is proper to the one nature, that is, giving your blood, is ascribed to the other nature, which is God. And the scripture does that all the time. And we have to be aware of that as we're reading, and we have to think about that. Now, you're most likely, if, if I'm right, you're most likely sitting there listening to another abstruse sermon by your old and about to retire pastor. And you are very likely thinking to yourself, so what? So let me give you an answer to this, so what? In Hebrews, 
the, writers, the writer of Hebrews tells us this. In chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you see it, beloved people of God? Without the Godhead and the manhood being inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which, is, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man, without this truth, mystery though it is, abstruse, abstruse what did I say, abstruse? As it may be, coming out of my mouth, you could never be saved if Christ isn't truly human. Amen. You could never be saved apart from Christ being fully human and fully divine. Mystery? I, I, I agree. Is it something that you must believe? I say yes. Amen. Why am I telling you this? Well, just this last week I was reading through a book. You know, and I, some of my books I get... They're pretty good, and I, but I kind of skim over them and I read through them fast. But I was reading through this one book, How God Became Man, and I couldn't believe my eyes when they fell upon the end of a paragraph that said, and God the Trinity be- became incarnate. Mm-hmm. Friends, God the Trinity did not become incarnate. No. God the Son took on human flesh. Mm-hmm. He, it's not the Father who died on the cross for our sins. How many times have I heard that on the radio? Christian radio. Praying, thank you, Father. And they say, thank you, Father, for dying for our sins. And I just cringe. I think you're broadcasting over the public and you're telling people something that's not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. Over and over again in our world, especially today, the church is not taught. We don't like these things. Christian education is too hard. It's too hard for us to think about these details of uh, what, what we claim to believe. But I'm telling you, if we don't hold on to them, Christianity will one day just slip away. I don't think God will let that happen. But the point is, <clears throat> we're going to lose the sharp edge of what it is that we believe. It's the kind of theology that says, Christ is my buddy that doesn't see the reality that Christ is, is also God. Jesus did call us friends, but He didn't call us buddy. You know, I mean, we've got to think, because we're moving into, the church is moving into an age where biblical truth is being sidelined for things that are practical and easy to understand. As though any other thing in life is easy to understand. Some of you are scientists here. Is it easy to understand your science? Is it? 
It's not. Life is difficult to understand, even for children, for goodness sake. And so the reality is, dear people, if you don't hold on to this truth of the divinity and humanity of Christ being held together in one person, then you cannot be saved. Christ cannot save us if that's not true about him. You see, Daniel may be righteous enough to die for his own sins. I, I don't believe that, but God granted that in Ezekiel. But Christ was righteous, and he died for our sins too. How did he do that? It's because he was divine and he was human. The same person had both natures. And because of that, he could give his life a ransom for many. It's a truth that we must embrace as difficult as it may be to understand. Well, may God grant us faith to believe and trust and so be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the mystery of the incarnation baffles our understanding. I know it does me. We can only see it as through a glass darkly. We do not know what we will be like, but this we do know, that when we see Him, we will be like Him. So keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Help us to consider Him who for a while was made a little lower than the angels, so that through Him, the God-man, we might become the children of God. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.